Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. We'll be looking at the second half of 2 Kings chapter 13. And in this chapter, in this last half of this chapter, we're going to see the death of Elisha. So earlier in 2 Kings, we saw the passing of Elijah. Remember, he was carried up uh, into heaven with uh, a whirlwind of fire and uh, chariots of fire. And in this passage, we're going to see what happened at Elisha's death. Uh, definitely very different, but also something quite miraculous involved in the passing of Elisha. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, let's pause there and take note of what is going on. So, first we see Jehoash, who is weeping over Elisha as Elisha is about to die. And this is surprising because earlier in the chapter, we were told that Jehoash was not a great king and so that he was a wicked king, or at least that he um, didn't get rid of the idolatry that Jeroboam had instituted, right? Uh, just a few verses before where we started back in verse 11, it says, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. So it seems surprising that he would be uh, grieving at the fact that Elisha is soon to pass, apparently, um, assuming that he knows that, right? And because uh, that's what we're told is happening in verse 14, Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. So uh, why is he uh, weeping and why does he say, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen? Now, interestingly, that's the same thing that Elisha said when Elijah was carried up into heaven. So if you were to go back to chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then it says, and he saw him no more. So why is this idolatrous king saying this and grieving or weeping uh, as Elisha is about to die? Well, it's difficult to know. Um, and it could be um, because the king has um, 
though he's caught up in idolatry, that he uh, does have sort of a part of him that cares about the Lord. Maybe he has a divided heart um, that he's not turned away from the idols, but he also is not hostile toward the Lord. That's a possibility. Um, one thing I read suggested that um, with the passing of uh, Elisha, he he's feeling like uh, what protection the Lord has given them is being uh, taken away. And um, uh, I can't remember if it was the same thing or something else I read pointed out, you know, that his army, we've just were told earlier in the chapter that his army uh, or the army of Israel was, um, you know, almost completely destroyed. And so with his mention of the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, maybe he's, you know, my, my physical army is, is basically, or the physical army of Israel's mostly destroyed and now uh, Elisha is leaving too. Like, what are we going to do? That makes a lot of sense. That's certainly a possibility. And it seems to fit with what comes next, where Elisha acts out or has the king act out really a prophecy of what is to come. And this is not unusual uh, for a prophet in the Old Testament to do some kind of, or be involved in some kind of symbolic act where they, they act out something that then has prophetic meaning. Uh, and so in this case, Elisha tells the king to take a bow and arrow and to shoot an arrow out the window. And Elisha says, that's the arrow of victory and that the Lord is going to give Israel victory over Syria, which of course is one of Israel's enemies. And, and then he says, you know, take the arrows and strike them. And the king does so, th or strike the ground with them. And the king does so three times. And then Elisha is mad because he says, you should have done it more times, right? Because now you're just going to beat Syria three times. If you've done it, you know, more times, then you would have completely uh, defeated uh, Syria or made an end of them, it says. Um, so that, that probably strikes you as as odd or confusing or what's going on there um it, it did me as i was reading it why is he mad what should the king have known but here's here's why i think he's mad because the arrow he's just said the arrow that the king shot out the window symbolized victory over assyria um then when he tells him to strike the area, the arrows on the ground, the king should understand that there's some connection here with their victory, and he should, you know, he should, uh, he should understand that, right? And so that that's kind of what I was thinking was going on, and then I read uh, somewhere else, somebody else arguing that was going on, somebody a lot smarter than me. So I feel like that's <laughs> that's probably a good explanation. It makes a lot of sense, um, and. Uh, so that's probably what's happening there, that um, the king should have uh, struck the ground more times with the arrows, knowing that the arrows represented victory over Syria. So this is pretty tricky stuff, right? So I'm, I'm having to lean on some other people to understand how all these things fit together. But then something really uh, interesting and surprising happens, in, starting in verse 20. It says, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now, Bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, 
he revived and stood on his feet. So uh, this is one of those just um, crazy in the best way stories from the Old Testament. Um, they're trying to bury a guy. They see a raiding band coming. They don't have time to finish the job correctly. So they just chunk him in with Elisha, as it were. And when he touches the bones of Elisha, he's raised back to life. Right? That's an incredible story just on the face of it. right? But what does it mean and why is it here? Well, one of the things I read, and I, and I may have read this in more than one place, was that this is probably meant to be a message to the people of Israel who are about to go into exile and they need to know that there is still the hope of life for them in the future, even if they are kicked out of the land. And, and at least one of the things I read, I can't remember, this may have been in the ESV study Bible or may have been in a commentary, maybe both, um, made the connection between what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37, where the army of Israel is pictured as a valley of, of dry bones, right? Remember, Ezekiel is, is prophesying during the exile. And he looks out on this valley of dry bones and uh, God says to him, you know, can these bones live? And he says, oh Lord, only you know. And of course, those bones do live. There's a sort of resurrection that happens there. And so uh, it could be that this story is there uh, to indicate to Israel um, that even as you know, death is approaching, there is a promise of, of life on the other side uh, of that death, on the other side of that exile. Um, and certainly it points forward to what happens with Jesus. Of course, Jesus raises people from the dead, but here's something... Uh, Jim Hamilton uh, said in, in, uh, in his recent book, uh, he connected Elisha and Jesus and this story in particular this way. All right, so I'm going to quote him here. He says, this is, this is fascinating, all right? You want to catch this. He says, Elisha raises a boy from the dead. Not only that, however, but in death, Elisha proves to be a life-giving prophet when a recently killed man is thrown into Elisha's grave and having come into contact with Elisha's bones, rises from the dead. So that's the story we just looked at, right? And then here's what he says. Jesus not only raises the dead, right? Elisha did and Jesus did. He too proves to be life-giving in his death as dead saints rise when he dies on the cross. Jesus also transcends anything Elisha accomplished in this regard when he himself rises from the dead. And we could add to that, uh, that Jesus, of course, has secured the resurrection of all believers from the dead for the future. But what he's pointing out in particular there is, just like when Elisha dies and a man's thrown into his grave and that man comes back to life, this is one of those stories we don't often talk about, but in the Gospel of Matthew, this is a story Hamilton is pointing to. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus dies, Matthew tells us, this is in Matthew 27, that um, saints, believers, uh, come out of their tombs when Jesus dies. And then uh, I think it's not until his resurrection, though, perhaps, that they, they enter the city of Jerusalem. So in his death, he brings life not only to those um, 
who were raised from the dead at that point, but also, of course, secures eternal life for us, for all who believe. Uh, and as Hamilton said, rises from the dead himself, which, of course, is something Elisha did not do because Jesus is so much greater than Elisha, and also secured uh, for us our resurrection. Right? Okay, a couple more paragraphs and then we'll uh, be done here. He said, verse 22, it says, Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Now we saw something like this earlier in the chapter in our previous session, but it's such a beautiful, encouraging, hopeful truth. I'm just grateful that we're being reminded of it again. God's people are unfaithful, they're sinful, but God is faithful. God keeps his promise, God keeps his covenant, God keeps loving his people. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. Uh, He's so much more faithful than us, and that's such good news. All right, last paragraph, verse 24 and 25. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz's father in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. In other words, just what Elisha prophesied would happen, did happen. Reminds us not only that Elisha was a true prophet, but that God always keeps his word. So God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his people. And God is able to give life even where there is death. And he has demonstrated that most powerfully and perfectly and beautifully in the death and resurrection of his son to secure salvation for all who believe. Praise God and God bless.